you please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13. It's a very familiar portion of Scripture. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Just two verses, but two spectacular verses. And I want to read the text and pray for God's help right off the bat. And then we're going to dive in and ransack these verses for all the truth and glory and hope and strength and encouragement that are here. Philippians 2, 12-13, Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And together we pray like Jesus prayed for us. Sanctify us in your truth. Make us holy. Make us more like Jesus now as we focus in on your truth. So let truth hold sway. I'm just a... a feeble, fallible preacher talking about glorious truth. And so I know we all know that this sermon will have no effect on us for the good of our souls unless you break in with spiritual power and grant your word success. So please do that. We cling to the promise that when your word goes out, it does not return empty. So do it. Give your word success, we pray, for our good and for the honor and glory of your name, the name in which we pray. Amen. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher from the mid to late 20th century, wrote this about our text. He said, it is perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. Here is one of the most pregnant statements which even Paul himself ever made. So these verses are all about the Christian life. It's all about living life in obedience to God. This is a text about growth in godliness. It's about putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. It's a text about killing sin and living by the Spirit. It's about the process that we call sanctification. The process of becoming more godly, more holy, more like our obedient Savior, Jesus. And it is a process. It's a lifelong process. When God saved us, in that moment when He granted us grace to bank our hope on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for the fulfillment of all His promises to us. In that moment, God did not bend down and kiss the frog and immediately transform that frog into a handsome prince or a beautiful princess. 
what he did do was make a declaration over the frog. He said to us, we frogs, the moment that we first believed, he said this, based on the righteous life of my son and based on his obedience and sacrificial death and based on his victorious resurrection and glorious ascension, I hereby declare this frog holy and blameless and above reproach in my sight. I will no longer look at that frog without looking at my son. And what I see in my son, I will count as belonging to that frog. That, brothers and sisters, is the glorious doctrine of justification. God's legal declaration that we are in his sight holy frogs though we be. And it's at that moment, that act of justification, that God begins the process of sanctification. The process of turning the frog into a prince or into a princess. Sanctification is the process whereby we become what God has already declared us to be. Holy. Or, to put it like Paul does in our text, sanctification is the process whereby we work out our salvation. That's what this text is all about. And God intends for this text to bring clarity and hope and help and encouragement to us as we live the Christian life. Now, that word, therefore, at the beginning of our verses is burns off the page. At least it should burn off the page. It has to be dealt with before we can move on to the heart of the text because that word, therefore, ties our text to what comes before it and it reminds us that our text this morning has a context. And remembering that context is key to understanding and applying these verses. So, first, there is a wider context. That word, therefore, reaches all the way back into Philippians 1.27. Here it is. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, is a heading over everything Paul says from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. So it's the heading over our verses this morning. There is a manner of life that shows the worth and power of the gospel. And if we turn this into a question, how do we live so as to show the power and worth of the gospel? The answer from our text is, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that God is at work in us. That's the wider context. Then there's the immediate context, which is also the gospel. You know Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It is a mountain range of the glories of Christ, who took on human nature and became a slave, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so is now exalted as Lord over all and will one day be worshipped by all of creation. That's the wider and the immediate context. 
And of course, the context of our text is the gospel. It's only because of the gospel that we can hope to work out our salvation in sin-slain obedience. It's Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection that set us free from sin so that now we're free to stop sinning, to obey God, to become progressively more like Him, to live in harmony with His worth and His excellence. It's Christ's cross and Christ's resurrection that grants freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. The freedom to begin to obey. It's at the cross of Christ that God canceled our sin so that we can conquer our sin by the Holy Spirit. When the cross canceled the condemning power of sin, it did not make working out our salvation, it did not make striving to be holy as He is holy unnecessary. It made it possible and in the end successful. So that's the context. That's the word therefore. That's what it means. So let's dive into the heart of the text now. And let's do it under two very simple, very obvious headings. First, our work. That's the second half of verse 12. And God's work. That's verse 13. Our work, God's work. So first, our work. Verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me make this point clear. Work out your salvation in the original Greek means work out your salvation. That word, work out, means produce it, bring it about, affect it. Produce your own salvation with fear and trembling. That language is almost dangerous. The Bible can be a dangerous book. It has to be handled with care. We're on a tightrope here, and we have to keep our balance. We work out the salvation that we received as a gift of grace. We have to put our salvation on display in a way that honors Christ, in a way that shows the worth of the gospel. And the, the way this verse is written makes it clear that that takes labor. Continuous, sustained effort. That's what the word that gets translated work means. Continuous, sustained effort. So the emphasis here is clearly on our responsibility. We are not passive in the process of sanctification, which is exactly why Paul begins here. This could have been a much more comfortable text if Paul would have begun with God's work in verse 13. But he didn't. Because he doesn't want us to be comfortable. Holiness does not happen apart from our effort. Our effort to obey. That's what the working out is. Trusting and obeying. Look at the text. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, obey. That's what you'd expect Paul to say, but it's not what he says. Instead, he says, he replaces the word obey with work out your salvation. And he says it this way because he wants to make clear that our active obedience is essential to finally being saved. Our active obedience to God is essential for us to finally be saved. 1 John 2.4, the Apostle John says it this way. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him, in Christ, that is, saved. Here's how. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which Jesus walked, which is walking in obedience, walking in holiness. That's how we work out our salvation. We act our deliverance from sin, which we have in Christ. We act our victory over sin, which is ours in Christ. We strive for the holiness without which we will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12.4. There is a measure of holiness required not to justify us, but to give evidence that we are indeed justified. And it's absolutely essential. Without the evidence, we are lost. Obedience is possible and obedience is absolutely necessary. And I say it this way, strong way, in no uncertain terms, because the false teaching that we should not expect Christians to change is out there. It's out there and it's seeping into our churches. It's seeped into mine. The last person to leave my church for theological reasons left because according to him, I preach the law and not the gospel because when I come to imperatives, that is when I come to commands in the Bible, I tell my people to obey them because I don't want them to die and go to hell. I want them to work out their salvation. But some would say that urging Christians to obey the Bible's commands is graceless legalism. Only the Apostle Paul didn't think so. And so I don't think so. But there are people out there who think so. And their books are published by publishing companies we love and endorsed by men and women we love and respect. Tully and Chavengin comes to Philippians 2, 12 and 13 and says this in his book, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Sanctification is the daily hard work, so here's the work of sanctification, of going back to the reality of our justification. So sanctification is just remembering that we're justified. The way we're sanctified is just by remembering that God declared us to be holy. Our work means coming to a greater understanding of Jesus' work. But, 
Sanctification is more than just the art of getting used to our justification. That's reductionistic. And it doesn't deal carefully with the whole counsel of God or even just this text. And it leads to what one writer calls celebratory failureism. Celebratory failureism. Just celebrating our failures in the Christian life. Most of us have heard people say something like this. I'm a wretched sinner, but praise God, Jesus came to save wretched sinners like me. I am such a wretch that I cannot faithfully obey God's commands for one moment, let alone one full day. Everything I do, even the apparently good things, are shot through with sin and ruined. I cannot love God with all my heart and my neighbor as myself. My heart is black with sin and I'm unfaithful to my faithful Savior. But God has saved me by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's forgiven me and wiped the guilt of my sin away. He's declared me holy based on the righteous life of Jesus. I'm his adopted child. And even though I continue in sin, I cannot disappoint my heavenly father because when he looks at me, all he sees is the righteousness of his son. Praise God. What a gospel. Now, most of that is absolutely true and unspeakably precious and beautiful. I mean, when we hear a paragraph like that or read it on a blog or in a book, we instinctively praise God for His glorious gospel grace. The trouble is that those are the words of someone who's lost their balance. It's not entirely true. It's not a careful statement of the power of the gospel. And we know why, don't we? Because obedience is possible. Holiness is attainable. Killing sin is doable. The Bible says so over and over and over again. It sounds humble to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm too big of a sinner. But that's not humble That's harmful because it's not true. And it denigrates the amazing grace of God that it hopes to celebrate. The grace that not only justified through faith, but also gives us the power in Christ to live new lives. And have you heard people say, I'm gospel-centered. I'm not into all that talk about killing sin and obeying the law. I've heard people say that, but it's a false dichotomy. I'm gospel-centered too. And I, I want a gospel that not only frees us from the penalty of sin, but also frees us from the power of sin, smack dab in the middle of every sermon I preach and everything I do, because the gospel is power for change. The gospel is power for obedience. It is an impotent gospel that leads people to say all our attempts to obey fail, thereby making us recipients of greater grace. That's wrong. 
God does not exhort us to work out our salvation, to obey in order to teach us that we cannot possibly hope to obey. That would be like me gathering my kids and saying, here are the house rules. If you want to live under my roof, these are the rules you have to keep. Now, I know you are absolutely unable to keep all these rules. So when you break these rules, you come to me so that I can extend grace to you for breaking those rules. That's not what God does. We can obey. We can keep the rules. That's the hope. That's the power of the gospel. And we need that hope, don't we? As the world and the devil press in on us every single day to succumb to the remaining sin in our own hearts. We need to know that there is gospel grace to walk in God's ways, to work out our salvation. The Christian life is not merely fail, repent, repeat. Fail, repent, repeat. I've been stuck in that rut. Maybe you've been stuck there too. And if you have, you know it's devastating. That devastates people. That devastates relationships. That devastates marriages and families. But God tells us, He says to us, this is my way, now walk in it, and I'll give you all the grace you need to walk in it. Sanctification is more than, you will fail, but there's grace for you. Sanctification is about failing less than we used to as we learn to obey in motive and deed, just like Christ our brother obeyed. It's about more and more taking on the family resemblance, being holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. I think one of the reasons we we can get hung up here, seeing this in years now of pastoring and doing pastoral counseling, I think we get hung up because we can slip into equating obedience with perfection. So if I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, then I'll never lose my temper. I'll never lust. I'll never be lazy. I'll never give in to self-pity. I'll never succumb to fear of man. I'll never do a good thing with mixed motives. I'll never lack joy in Jesus. How many of us can say that? I, I don't go to bed ever thinking that I've been kind enough. I've been loving enough. I've been gracious enough. I've been faithful enough today. Now, here's the danger. Rather than dealing with the weight of the expectation of perfection, and the expectation of perfection is weighty. So rather than deal with that, we chuck the emphasis on obedience altogether. But listen, it's not true that the call to obedience, to work out our salvation, is a call to perfection. That is not true. If God only accepted our perfect obedience, where would we be? I mean, here's the good news. By His grace, God accepts our imperfect obedience through Christ. We will always be imperfect in this life. God knows that. 
He sovereignly designed sanctification to be a process. But he began that process by justifying us. He's already declared us perfect because of Christ's perfection. Now we're in the process of becoming. God still gives commands in the new covenant. And now we obey them. Not hoping to prove ourselves and earn some status before God, but we obey them hoping to live out all we are in Christ. And when we do obey, God is pleased. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we need to hear that, don't we? I need to hear it over and over. God is pleased with my imperfect obedience because when I obey, I'm bringing my life more and more in harmony with His worth and excellence. When we work out our salvation, when we obey and trust, our Heavenly Father is pleased with us. It's all over the Bible. When we do good works and grow in our knowledge of God, He's pleased, Colossians 1.10. When we present our bodies as living sacrifices of worship, God accepts it and is pleased, Romans 12.1. When we look out for our weaker brother, God is pleased, Romans 14.18. When children obey their parents, God is pleased, Colossians 3.20. When we're faithful to speak the gospel, it pleases God, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. When we share with others and make sacrifices for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's pleasing to God, Hebrews 13, 15. When we keep God's commandments, we please Him, 1 John 3, 22. Whenever we trust and obey, God is pleased. Obedience is possible and obedience is necessary and God is pleased to accept our imperfect obedience. That is, the, that is the power of gospel grace. It's power for gospel growth. It's the power to work out our salvation. And we're to work out our salvation with a particular attitude. The end of verse 12 says that we're to do it with fear and trembling. Now that phrase points us to our next heading, God's work. It points us to verse 13 because the reason we're to do it with fear and trembling, not, not afraid that we're not going to do it right, that we're going to mess it up and lose God's favor, not that kind of fear, but with reverential awe. We're to work out our salvation with reverential awe because God Almighty, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, our Redeemer and Justifier, our Father is so close to us that He's working in us. I mean, let that fill you with an awe and reverence that makes you tremble. God is working in us. Verse 13 again. For... Praise God, it does not say so that. It says for or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The call in the Bible to work out, Philippians 2.12, 
The call to strive, Hebrews 12.14. To train, 1 Timothy 4.7. To make every effort, 2 Peter 1.5. To put to death, Colossians 3.5. To put off and put on, Ephesians 4.22. To fight, 1 Timothy 6.12. To run, Hebrews 12.1. To press on, Philippians 3.14. To toil and struggle, Colossians 1.29. That call would be absolutely overwhelming except for that little word for at the beginning of verse 13. The entire Christian life hangs on that one little word. We work for or because God is already at work in us. Hallelujah. That means verse 12 is not an appeal to self-sufficiency. It means our growth in holiness is not self-generated. We are not left alone to work out our salvation. This clarifies how we grow. Our effort is necessary. But only God's power makes our effort possible. We work out because God works in. We don't sit idly by and wait for the urge to obey and do good works and kill sin. That's not what we do. We get up and we do it. And we do it with the confidence that what's causing us to do it is God. I mean, this is a stunning announcement. This is a happy announcement. It's an encouraging, hopeful, assuring announcement. I need it. You need it. God is at work in you. He's at work in me. He's at work in every Christian. And this verse is the accent and emphasis of our text. This verse, God's work is the cause of, Verse 12, our work is the effect. God's work is the cause of our work. He is the infinite worker. And when our finite work is empowered by His work, our work becomes an expression of His work. That's why He accepts our faith and obedience and why it pleases Him. It's ultimately an expression of His work in us. And God's work in us is comprehensive. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. In other words, not only does God empower the working, but He empowers the willing behind the working as well. That's why I entitled this sermon, The Empowered Will to Obey. The desire to obey, to please God, the will to do it, And the actual doing of it are all because of God. If we have any inclination in our heart at all to please God and to run the race of this Christian life, we can be encouraged. God put that in our hearts. Are you tempted to despair in your battle against remaining sin in your heart? Are you weary in your attempts to obey? Are you confused about how growth in holiness happens? Well, here's the answer. Right in this text. That will turn despair into joy, weariness into strength, 
and confusion into clarity. God is at work in you both to will and to work. God is at work. He's at work in you and He's always working in you. It's not always obvious that God is working. Sometimes you can't even tell. Sometimes you wonder if anything's happening at all. Well, here's what we now know. Here's what we now know is true regardless of how we feel. God is always at work in the lives of His children. And He does it all for His good pleasure. God will be a happy God. Philippians 1.6 is true. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started it, God will complete it, and God will keep on working in us in the meantime. And so we can go forward, we can press on, we can work out our salvation, trusting that God is always at work in us. Let me encourage you, to let these two verses stand together. We must let them stand in tension. We have to keep them in tension. Because if we keep them in tension, we can stay on the tightrope. When a tightrope loses its tension, it droops. And when the tightrope droops, you fall off. This is God's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side in perfect tension. Keep them there. Keep them together. They're together all over the Bible. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul killed the sin of laziness. He made every effort in ministry, but the decisive power to kill the sin and work hard came from the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 16-17 But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, But being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So God gives zeal to Titus. That is, he works in him the willing. And then Titus acts in that earnestness of his own accord. He works out his salvation. And Paul does not see a contradiction here. There is no contradiction between God working the will to do a thing and Titus willing it as his will. It is his will. God doesn't contradict our will. He transforms our will. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're commanded here to put sin to death. In other words, we should not wait for God to kill our sin while we remain passive. We kill it. Yet we're to kill it by the Spirit. It's ultimately God's Spirit, by His Spirit, that sin is slain. But we do the slaying. 1 Peter 4.11 
Whoever speaks, we do the speaking as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, we do the serving as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So God is the strength in all our serving, but we do the serving. One more, Colossians 1.29. For this I toil, struggling. So Paul is the one toiling and struggling. How? With all his energy with all God's energy that He powerfully works within me, side by side, in perfect tension. One time Charles Spurgeon was approached by someone who asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? To which Spurgeon replied, I do not try to reconcile friends. Verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2 are friends. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. God produces. We perform. God's work in our sanctification does not limit or nullify our work in sanctification. It creates it. John Piper has given us all kinds of great terms, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, books. But one of my all-time favorites is his description of the process of sanctification. It's a paraphrase of our text. Here it is. Act the miracle. Act the miracle. Just three words and he nails it. Act the the miracle. That's Philippians 2, 12-13 in three words. Acting a miracle is not the same as working a miracle. When Jesus tells the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand, he's working a miracle. When that man stretches out his hand, he's acting the miracle. When it comes to our working out of our salvation, We don't wait passively for the miracle of killing sin or pressing on or obeying or striving to be worked on us. We act the miracle that's already taking place inside of us. The process of sanctification, of becoming holy, is a divine miracle in us. And we act the miracle as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God authors the miracle of sanctification. We act the miracle. So, take heart, weary sin killer, weary obeyer, weary runner, weary fighter, weary worker. God is not a passive spectator cheering you on from the sidelines. God is working inside of you right now. And He's working for His good pleasure, shaping your will so that your desire is to do what He's called you to do. Take heart. Whenever God calls you to do something, He will provide the power necessary to do it. So when you find yourself obeying, thank God. 
When you love the unlovely, thank God. When you choose what's right, thank God. When you show mercy to the weak, thank God. When you give generously to God's kingdom work, thank God. When you get up early and read your Bible and pray, thank God. When you feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the prisoner and take in the stranger, thank God. When you turn the other cheek, thank God. When you share the gospel with your neighbor, thank God. When you turn away from pornography, thank God. When you forgive and bless instead of curse, thank God. We act the miracle. We work out our salvation. For it is God who works in us. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank You for the miracle. You are at work in us. That is a happy announcement. Let that bring us hope. Let it bring us help and strength and encouragement. Raise up the weary and grant them power to press on. We act the miracle. Work your miracle of sanctification in us and cause us more and more to walk in a manner that shows the worth and power of your gospel. Cause us more and more to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Cause us more and more to live a life pleasing to You. Give us a gospel understanding of these things. Give us gospel thoughts that lead to gospel affections and let that gospel work itself out in our lives for our good and for our joy and for Your honor and for Your glory. And in Jesus' name, Amen.